Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Republic, Book 9, Part 3. These, then, are the two proofs in a row, and the just person has defeated the unjust one in both. The third is dedicated in Olympic fashion to Olympian Zeus the Savior. Observe, then, that, apart from those of a knowledgeable person, the other pleasures are neither entirely true nor pure, but are like shadow painting, as I think I've heard some wise person say. And yet, if this were true, it would be the greatest and most decisive of the overthrows. It certainly would, but what exactly do you mean? I'll find out if I ask the questions and you answer. Ask them. Tell me, don't we say that pain is the opposite of pleasure? Certainly. And is there such a thing as feeling neither pleasure nor pain? There is. Isn't it intermediate between these two? A sort of calm of the soul by comparison to them? Or don't you think of it that way? I do. And do you recall what sick people say when they're ill? Which saying of theirs do you have in mind? That nothing gives more pleasure than being healthy, but that they hadn't realized that it was most pleasant until they fell ill. I do recall that. And haven't you also heard that those who are in great pain say that nothing is more pleasant than the cessation of their suffering? I have. And there are many similar circumstances, I suppose, in which you find people in pain praising not enjoyment, but the absence of pain and relief from it is most pleasant. That may be because at such times a state of calm becomes pleasant enough to content them. And when something ceases to feel pleasure, this calm will be painful to him. Probably so. Then the calm we described as being intermediate between pleasure and pain will sometimes be both. So it seems. Now, is it possible for that which is neither to become both? Not in my view. Moreover, the coming to be of either the pleasant or the painful in the soul is a sort of motion, isn't it? Yes. And didn't what is neither painful nor pleasant come to light just now as a calm state, intermediate between them? Yes, it did. Then how can it be right to think that the absence of pain is pleasure, or that the absence of pleasure is pain? There's no way it can be. Then it isn't right. But when the calm is next to the painful, it appears pleasant. And when it is next to the pleasant, it appears painful. However, there is nothing sound in these appearances, as far as the truth about pleasure is concerned, only some kind of magic. That's what the argument suggests, at any rate. Take a look at the pleasures that don't come out of pains, so that you won't suppose in their case also that it is the nature of pleasure to be the cessation of pain, or of pain to be the cessation of pleasure. Where am I to look? What pleasures do you mean? The pleasures of smell are especially good examples to take note of, for they suddenly become very intense without being preceded by pain, and when they cease, they leave no pain behind. But there are plenty of other examples as well. That's absolutely true. 
then let no one persuade us that pure pleasure is relief from pain, or that pure pain is relief from pleasure. No, let's not. However, most of the so-called pleasures that reach the soul through the body, as well as the most intense ones, are of this form. They are some kind of relief from pain. Yes, they are. And aren't the pleasures and pains of anticipation, which arise from the expectation of future pleasures or pains, also of this form? They are. Do you know what kind of thing they are and what they most resemble? No. What is it? Do you believe that there is an up, a down, and a middle in nature? I do. And do you think that someone who was brought from down below to the middle would have any other belief than that he was moving upward? And if he stood in the middle and saw where he had come from, would he believe that he was anywhere other than the upper region, since he hadn't seen the one that is truly upper? By God, I don't see how he could think anything else. And if he was brought back, wouldn't he suppose that he was being brought down? And wouldn't he be right? Of course. Then wouldn't all this happen to him because he is inexperienced in what is really and truly up, down, and in the middle? Clearly. Is it any surprise, then, if those who are inexperienced in the truth have unsound opinions about lots of other things as well? Or that they are so disposed to pleasure, pain, and the intermediate state that, when they descend to the painful, they believe truly and are really in pain, but that, when they ascend from the painful to the intermediate state, they firmly believe that they have reached fulfillment and pleasure? They are inexperienced in pleasure, and so are deceived when they compare pain to painlessness, just as they would be if they compared black to gray without having experienced white. No, by God, I wouldn't be surprised. In fact, I'd be very surprised if it were any other way. Think of it this way. Aren't hunger, thirst, and the like some sort of empty states of the body? They are. And aren't ignorance and lack of sense empty states of the soul? Of course. And wouldn't someone who partakes of nourishment or strengthens his understanding be filled? Certainly. Does the truer filling up fill you with that which is less or that which is more? Clearly, it's with that which is more. And which kinds partake more of pure being? Kinds of filling up, such as filling up with bread or drink or delicacies or food in general? Or the kind of filling up that is with true belief, knowledge, understanding, and, in some, with all virtue? Judge it this way. That which is related to what is always the same, immortal, and true, is itself of that kind, and comes to be in something of that kind. This is more, don't you think, than that which is related to what is never the same and mortal, is itself of that kind, and comes to be in something of that kind. That which is related to what is always the same is far more. And does the being of what is always the same participate more in being than in knowledge? Not at all. Or more than in truth? Not that either. And if less in truth, then less in being also? Necessarily. And isn't it generally true that the kinds of filling up that are concerned with the care of the body 
share less in truth and being than those concerned with the care of the soul? Yes, much less. And don't you think that the same holds of the body in comparison to the soul? Certainly. And isn't that which is more, and is filled with the things that are more, really more filled than that which is less, and is filled with the things that are less? Of course. Therefore, if being filled with what is appropriate to our nature is pleasure, that which is more filled with things that are more enjoys more really and truly a more true pleasure, while that which partakes of things that are less is less truly and surely filled and partakes of a less trustworthy and less true pleasure. That's absolutely inevitable. Therefore, those who have no experience of reason or virtue, but are always occupied with feasts and the like, are brought down and then back up to the middle, as it seems, and wander in this way throughout their lives, never reaching beyond this to what is truly higher up, never looking up at it or being brought up to it, and so they aren't filled with that which really is, and never taste any stable or pure pleasure. Instead, they always look down at the ground like cattle, and, with their heads bent over the dinner table, they feed, fatten, and fornicate. To outdo others in these things, they kick and butt them with iron horns and hooves, killing each other, because their desires are insatiable. For the part that they're trying to fill is like a vessel full of holes, and neither it nor the things that they are trying to fill it with are among the things that are. Socrates, you've exactly described the life of the majority of people, just like an oracle. Then isn't it necessary for these people to live with pleasures that are mixed with pains? Mere images and shadow paintings of true pleasures? And doesn't the juxtaposition of these pleasures and pains make them appear intense, so that they give rise to mad, erotic passions in the foolish, and are fought over in just the way that Stesichorus tells us the phantom of Helen was fought over at Troy by men ignorant of the truth? Something like that must be what happens. And what about the spirited part? Mustn't similar things happen to someone who satisfies it? Doesn't his love of honor make him envious? And his love of victory make him violent? So that he pursues the satisfaction of his anger and of his desires for honors and victories without calculation or understanding. Such things must happen to him as well. Then can't we confidently assert that those desires of even the money-loving and honor-loving parts that follow knowledge and argument and pursue with their help these pleasures that reason approves will attain the truest pleasures possible for them, because they follow truth, and the ones that are most their own, if indeed what is best for each thing is most its own? And indeed, Socrates, it is best. Therefore, when the entire soul follows the philosophic part, and there is no civil war in it, each part of it does its own work exclusively, and is just, and in particular it enjoys its own pleasures, the best and truest pleasures possible for it. Absolutely. But when one of the other parts gains control, it won't be able to secure its own pleasure, and will compel the other parts to pursue an alien, an untrue pleasure. That's right. 
And aren't the parts that are most distant from philosophy and reason the ones most likely to do this sort of compelling? Well, they're much more likely. And isn't whatever is most distant from reason also most distant from law and order? Clearly. And didn't the erotic and tyrannical desires emerge as most distant from these things? By far. And weren't the kingly and orderly ones least distant? Yes. Then, I suppose that a tyrant will be most distant from a pleasure that is both true and his own, and that a king will be least distant. Necessarily. So, a tyrant will live most unpleasantly, and a king most pleasantly. Necessarily. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>